people in the future are doing better than they are today. We still have problems, but we figure them out. <laughs> and uh, it's a wonderful cast. We have uh, Doug Jones, who was uh, the creature in Shape of Water that won the Oscar and all these other uh, awards for the best film, and he's also in uh, Star Trek Discovery. We have uh, Bill Mooney, who has been in countless hundreds and hundreds of shows, including the original Lost in Space and Babylon 5. Uh, we have uh, our lead, uh, his name is Ethan McDowell, and he's now a regular on The Walking Dead. So uh, since filming this, his career has really taken off. And uh, we also have uh, Bruce Boxleitner, who was Tron in the original Tron, and uh, again also a star in Babylon 5. Uh, we have uh, Mira Furlan, the, the great Mira Furlan uh, from Lost and countless other shows. And uh, this is her final released performance. So uh, after this, uh, I don't think there'll be any more Mira Furlan, but she is wonderful in this, playing a xenoarchaeologist. Cool. Love that. Uh, <laughs> our design team is wonderful. We have Ian McKeague, who is the uh, a guy who designed Darth Maul, Queen Amidala, and Hagrid and the other creatures in uh, the Harry Potter series, our, our visual effects people from Star Trek and uh, Battlestar Galactica and other uh, shows. So we have all these wonderful, talented sci-fi stars who wanted to do our project, Space Command, because they loved the story. There was a hopeful vision of the future. There's all kinds of interesting conflicts and things that happen, but it has a, a positive, uplifting vibe to it. And I got to contribute to that in doing the soundtrack, which we recorded with a symphony orchestra and chorus here in L.A., as well as in Budapest and other places uh, in New York City. We got to uh, create all kinds of wonderful science fiction music effects. Uh, there's a real theremin played on the soundtrack, and That's cool. you don't hear too many of those I anymore, um, although uh, Loki uh, used the theremin, but we did it first. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> lots of uh, wonderful science fiction stars, lots of wonderful science fiction ideas, and the soundtrack is available on all of the usual platforms. You, you can find it on uh, Amazon and Apple Music and Barnes and & Noble and uh, wherever you like to get your music. And it's great fun, lots of exciting music. And it is the music that's heard in the movie. So if you're a, a soundtrack collector fan, then you know that the, the holy grail is to get the soundtrack as it was heard in the movie, and that's what we're giving you. That's really, that's really cool. Um, I was Along with bonus material. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was really thinking, um, I wanted to ask you about um, one of my favorite uh, composers, other than yourself, of course. Um, Thanks. Uh, was is Sondheim passing? Um, do you have any thoughts about Sondheim? Oh well, you know Sondheim is one of the giants of Broadway, and I have followed his career pretty much my whole life. Uh, partly because uh, one of the first uh, musicals I played in was. West Side Story when yeah. I was in high school and you know that, that show is uh, constantly being produced all around the world and uh, I, I got to be in a small production of it so uh, I've been a, a fan of Sondheim's work since I was a kid and uh, I think he's probably the 
most successful and one of the most uh, influential composer lyricist combos you know uh, usually there's a person who writes the music and a person who writes the lyrics and that's what Sondheim did on West Side Story you mm-hmm. know, he was the lyricist and Leonard Bernstein was the composer but his career blossomed into composing and he actually said many times that as uh, incredibly clever and wonderful as his lyrics are that his favorite part of working on a show is writing the music mm-hmm. yeah and, and, and some he... of them, like Winnie Todd have you know a very uh, dramatic and uh, not like a typical musical sound he learned his craft he was mentored really by Oscar Hammerstein yes Oscar Hammerstein was actually his next door neighbor so uh-huh. how about that for a stroke of fate isn't that cool yeah he, he and he was the, he went... lyricist of the previous generation just happened to live next door to the greatest lyricist of the next generation and he was friends with his son <laughs> yes exactly and that's like the coincidence of that is and, and it really sparked his whole career is just isn't that remarkable it is remarkable and uh, that's actually how uh, West Side Story came about is that uh, the the team you know uh, Jerome Robbins and uh, Leonard Bernstein and you know the, the, the uh, the people that started the, the West Side Story uh, production were looking for a lyricist. And uh, Oscar Hammerstein II, that's his full name, uh, told a very young, like, you know, 21 year old uh, Stephen Sondheim that he should audition for this. And Sondheim did not want to do it. He thought it would was not uh, going to be something where uh, he would enjoy the process because everybody else was more famous and more accomplished than, than he was. Uh, but uh, Oscar explained to him that that's exactly the reason why you should do it. Mm-hmm. You, because you, you get to work with all these great people. And you up your your abilities because you're with geniuses. <laughs> yes, exactly. So. Uh, uh, later Sondheim said that uh, what can I say it was good advice yeah 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 and I I remember um, I saw an interview with him his next play was um, he he did a play of his own that didn't work out and then the next play was Gypsy and he was supposed to do the music and the lyrics but apparently Ethel Merman got pretty much burnt by her last um, uh, young kid musician is what she called him, and uh, she goes, "You can you can do one or the other. You can't do both. We have to have somebody of a, of um, experience." And I I can't remember, was it Jerome Kern who did Gypsy? The music. That's a, that's a good question. You know, these are things that I. Uh, I keep track of uh, when I'm involved, and then they uh, fly out of my mind until I need to use it again. Uh, and that's how I keep up with so many different things. <laughs> well, what I was going to say was that, um, again, Oscar came, and he says, I know you're disappointed, but this time you get to focus your lyrics on a great artist and really tailor it toward her. That's a good thing to learn. And that's you know he 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 accepted the as he put it the demotion, uh, <laughs> and you know big Bonzo box office huge thing, and of course Ethel was happy. Um, <laughs> well, the uh, the composer for Gypsy, the great Jules Stein. Oh, it's Jules who, Stein. <laughs> it was not only a uh, incredibly successful writer of songs and musicals, but he also 
left a huge donation uh, to uh, UCLA to build an eye institute that's named after him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they called him Julie Stein. Yeah, Julie Stein. That, that's how he was known to his friends. But I, I just, I, you know how you blank, and I just blanked. I just couldn't remember. I, I don't know why I thought to, well, I, I got the J right. <laughs> yes. Uh, he even wrote a famous Christmas song, Julie Stein. Uh, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Uh-huh. Do you know how many Jewish people wrote Christmas songs? I think it's great. Yes, well, you know, that's one of the, the, the secrets of American Christmas is that we get the Jewish people to write the Christmas songs. Irving Berlin, Mel Torme, Julie Stein, they all wrote the, some of the most famous Christmas songs ever. <laughs> yes, and that, that actually goes back to the classical music era uh, where uh, Felix Mendelssohn, wrote uh, a famous Christmas song. Do you know which one? Mendelssohn. No? Um, if I do, it's not coming up to my, my conscious. Well, uh, he wrote Heart the Herald Angels Sing. Oh, yeah. That's, That's one of the big Christmas songs, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, I forgot to say... Uh, uh, Mel wrote, Mel Torme wrote um, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, and Irving yes, Berlin. Yes, that's the official. Uh, that's the unofficial name of it. The, the real name of it is the Christmas song. Oh well, that's that's really putting it right there. Um, and the and Irving Berlin wrote White Christmas, which you know is yes one of the songs. Um, yes, that's the best-selling songs of all time. Still. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Um, but uh, yes. yeah, it's just really remarkable. I remember an interview with Mel Torme, and they asked him, "How did you come up with uh, Chestnuts?" Because it was one of those really hot hot summers in LA and we're trying to cool down so we're trying to think of all the things about winter that you know made you uh, think about it being cold <laughs> and that's yeah. how we came up uh, with the song well uh, Mel described it as an exercise in thinking cool mm -hmm. yeah yeah the reason chestnuts on an open fire is because when you you're really cold, you hold a bag of chestnuts to warm your hands, <laughs> which I didn't know when I was a little girl because I was brought up in California. My my mom and dad, who are East Coast people, had to explain it to us. <laughs> yes, so uh, a lot of uh, a lot of great connections there. But uh, getting back to the song time. Uh, I think the first time I came across him was when I saw a very funny comedy, or at least as a little kid it was uh, funny called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Farm. Great play. Which is based on his uh, his Broadway play of the same name. And, uh... Zero must know. I, you know, I was too young to see it when, it when it came out, but, you know, later I saw it on TV, and uh, I didn't even uh, fully appreciate what a big deal it was that uh, this relatively new, young Broadway composer was having this major Hollywood production of his show. Yeah. Yeah. I, and didn't Zero just come off of Fiddler? I think Fiddler was uh, a little bit later in the 1962. Uh, when was Fiddler on the Roof? I know the movie was in 1971-72 uh, because that was uh, John Williams' first uh, Oscar. Uh. Was 
arranging the Fiddler on the Roof songs for the movie version. I love, so, I love Fiddler. Again, you know, that's an incredible coincidence, incredible good fortune that uh, when he's starting out in the movies, that he gets to work on, you know, the biggest movie of the year, or one of the biggest movies of the year. It's just incredible, yeah. Well, yeah, and John Williams, what a career. Yeah, yeah, 64. Fiddler on the Roof came out in 64, and Funny Thing Happened the Way the Farm was 62. Oh, so it was the other way around, okay. But, again, you know, these were things where I was too young, you know, I wasn't even alive, actually, uh, when these things came out. I saw them on TV later, but I really appreciated them, and... I always try and see a movie that I like in a theater to see the way it was intended because mm -hmm. it really makes such a huge difference. I know I write music differently when I know it's going to be played in the theater and the engineer I work with, Mike Arvold, he also works that way as well. He is mixing for the space it's going to be played in and that really does make a difference. You can hear and feel the difference when it's been created for a theater in contrast to like created for a TV. Mm -hmm. And they're both great, but they're different. Oh yeah. I mean, really, if you put movie music in a theater, you could blast people out of their seats. Right, and that's part of the fun, at least for some of the audiences, that, you know, they want that. And in Space Command, I got to do that. There are sections where, you know, there's these epic space battles, and it needs epic space battle music. And you need a symphony orchestra to make that work, and you also need a movie theater to make it work, although it still works in a different way when you're watching it on TV, because then you focus more on the characters and less on the spectacle. Yeah, actually, I don't. I don't think I saw. I saw any of those movies uh, in a movie theater. I was too young. I saw them all on TV. Yeah, I was young too. Like I said, I wasn't even born for a lot of these. But uh, I saw them on TV, and then later at revival theaters, I would try and see it in a movie theater. Uh, and there's there's some. Movies like uh, it's a mad, 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 mad world. Oh, I love that movie. Yes, uh, I liked that movie until I saw it in the Cinerama Dome. The Cinerama Dome is a very large format theater here in LA, and it was a experimental film format, extra, extra wide and tall screen that uh, had a, a run in the, uh, in the 1960s, 1950s, 1960s. And there's very few theaters in the world that can still play that format. But when I saw it in the Cinerama Dome, the way it was intended, it became a hysterically funny comedy. Mm -hmm. And the joke just played differently. And the actors' performances, they all clearly knew what they were doing and made their gestures and their tone of voice and the way they delivered things so it would play in a theater. And the jokes are funny jokes, so they still work on a TV screen, but they go from being funny to being hilarious when you're in a movie theater. And it had every person who was either a comedian or a comedic actor in the business practically on that in that film, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, it was a, a big production, and everybody was at the top of their game. Mm -hmm. But to understand that, to appreciate that, you actually do have to see it in the movie theater because that's what they were playing for. They weren't playing for the gestures and the delivery to read well on a small speaker on a small screen. They were going, you know, they were swinging for the rafters there. <laughs> Don't laugh at me, but the first Cinerama Dome movie I ever saw was How to Marry a Millionaire. <laughs> I yeah, loved, uh, but I really loved it because it was like 
because when you watch it on TV, even when they do the box, it just isn't as cool as when you watch it up in that huge, big screen. Which, I don't, it's not there anymore, right? They got rid of that. In L.A. Uh, uh, which one? The Cinerama Dome? It's not there, right? No, the Cinerama is still... Oh, they saved there. it. There was, okay, they saved it. There was a time, well, actually two or three times, where it was in danger of being torn down and, and turned into condos and office buildings because that area, the real estate is very valuable. Mm -hmm. But each time some rich person who likes movies has come in and saved it. So it, it, it's, it's still around. I'm glad. That's one of my For favorite places. That's one of my favorite places in L.A. to go see a movie. It's just so cool. But anyway, that was the first one I was yes. well, that was, about know, 12 years old. State of the art high tech in the 1960s. And, uh, you know, th that was also uh, the era where surround sound was developed. Mm -hmm. But again, the people who were doing this were just a little ahead of their time. So uh, that particular version uh, kind of faded away, and it had to be kind of reinvented with the surround sound of the 1970s or, you know, IMAX. Yeah, I've been to an IMAX. That actually gets me kind of, gives me kind of a headache. <sighs> it's, yeah, well, it's a lot. It's not necessarily, you know, uh, for everybody, but I do like seeing action movies and superhero and science fiction and IMAX because, again, you know, the Filmmakers are often making it for that format. They're putting in details where it really does have to be 60 feet tall for you to clearly see it. I, I think the movie I saw was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It was a great movie. It's one of my favorites. It was just, it was, it, I don't know why, but I walked out of there with a headache. <sighs> yeah, that, that can happen. Uh, 3D movies can be that way for me, but uh, sometimes not, so it's kind of a technical thing. Mm -hmm. I never got that when I was at the Cinerama Dome, uh, ever. It was, I, I just enjoyed the movie. I'm not sure why IMAX affects me that way, so sorry IMAX people. Um. <laughs> yes, and you know, IMAX was actually, uh, uh, you know, just right after that. In other words, it was Cinerama, and then after that, a few years later, there was IMAX. And IMAX is the one that seems to stick, you know, that has remained really popular. Yeah, they have a good theater up at uh, Universal. That's when I, where I went to see it. Well, you have a good IMAX theater in San Diego, too, right? Yeah. I, I and you have the Ruben H. Fleet Theater there, too, which does... Uh, occasionally shows movies as well as planetarium shows. Yes. Uh, and I love that. Um, oh, we have a great... Go ahead. Oh, I was uh, just going to say I wanted to uh, mention that we have a live concert coming up. Uh, I also like to do concert music, and uh, we have a performance coming up on the 18th of September with the... Uh, Redlands Faculty Quintet and they're all virtuosos who play on soundtracks and in live concerts all the time so I, I feel really fortunate that I get to have some of my music performed by these amazing artists live in front of an audience. That's so cool. I love live music like that. Just uh, love going to a concert. I used, when I when I lived in LA, I used to go to the Hollywood Bowl. That was like the to me, it's one of the best sound places to go listen to a concert. Uh, yes, uh, and in fact, speaking of John Williams, he just played this weekend his annual Hollywood Bowl concert. Oh, I've been to that. That is so cool when he does that. Ugh. Yes, he's been doing it for literally forty-two years. Uh huh. Which is kind of amazing because you know. The Hollywood Bowl is focused on uh, more popular music, popular acts. So for him to stay popular for that long 
doing instrumental music is phenomenal. Yeah, but look at the instrumental music he's doing. <laughs> right, because, you know, most of the star acts that are at the Hollywood Bowl are famous singers. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh. I saw I saw some great ones. I saw Pavarotti. Um, and I saw Bever I, I don't know why I, I've seen a lot of opera I saw Beverly Sills there too <laughs> yeah they do have opera there they have uh, you know uh, I've seen all kinds of stuff there you know they, they, they really are eclectic as long as they can draw a crowd in the neighborhood of 15,000 people yeah I actually got well I was never a big fan of them, but I was. I brought on a date to see the Everly Brothers. It was good. I was like surprised. I go, oh, this is kind of cool. <laughs> that was one yeah. of my. That was one of my first times going to um, a concert there. Um, but then I went to see John yeah. Williams, so I was much more happy. <laughs> well, uh, with. John Williams, you get something exciting and wonderful that I only see at his concerts and nowhere else. You get an audience full of thousands of people waving illuminated lightsabers. Mm -hmm. And if you go on to uh, YouTube, you can see videos, and some of them are, are, are pretty good quality. Uh, it's just an amazing, dazzling sight to see these thousands of multicolored lights all moving. And I remember one year, uh, you know, the people brought out their lightsabers, and John knew it was coming, and he turned around and he said, I want you to wave your lightsabers in time with the music. <laughs> he starts to conduct the audience. I love it. And it was amazing. It was like a lifetime experience. Yeah, uh, John Williams and um, Henry Mancini, when they were doing stuff like that, I also saw that him, uh, Henry Mancini, and they, had, they had the best sense of humor. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, they were just funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, they have comedy acts there, too. Uh, I, I saw Katy Perry there, but, so, yeah, you know, no, the I'm Hollywood Bowl has a lot of different kinds of things. No, I'm just saying that for very serious musicians, they had this really good sense of humor, Henry Mancini and John Williams. Oh, well, you know, uh, there's a saying that, you know, show people are the funniest people in the world. I think that's an Orson Welles quote. <laughs> but what does he mean by it? <laughs> Funny in the sense of humorous. Okay. <laughs> you never know with Orson. Uh, <laughs> I just had to make sure. No, I mean, he said it with a smile. He meant it as that, you know, the, uh, when you're looking at a drama on screen, you're not seeing that at the end of that scene, the the actors may be cracking up. Uh huh. Many just times. The movie's <laughs> content is serious doesn't mean that the people making it are serious all the time. Yeah, I think they, they can have a sense of humor. I think that's one of the fun things about working on the set is to watch that. is seeing them crack up, especially when it's really tense. Um, yes, well, okay. that's one of the things, uh, you know, it also helps. Uh, for example, in a rehearsal, uh, if you keep a, 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 a good conductor will keep making small jokes all through the rehearsal because the musicians play better if they're relaxed. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Maybe that's why um, I never got to see it in person. I only got to see it in PBS. But maybe that's why Danny Kaye was so popular with the symphony orchestras he uh, he conducted. 
yes, they could enjoy being with him. Just because they're quote serious musicians, they can also have a sense of humor. Oh yeah. It just it was um, that's I used to love that. At least I I couldn't wait till they showed. It usually was like January or something like that. Like I guess it was a little off season maybe. Um, when when Danny did it, he always did it for charity. Um, usually UNICEF. Yes, well, he was one of the early and uh, most popular UNICEF ambassadors going around the world mm-hmm. to help uh, improve conditions for poor children. Yeah, um, when he died, uh, Sidney Poitier and Audrey Hepburn took over, and Audrey Hepburn said, nobody can take over for Danny Kay, we're just going to do our best. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh but they're also, you know, wonderful artists in their own right. They don't do what Danny Kaye does. You no. know, they, Audrey Hepburn does what Audrey Hepburn does. Right. And Sidney Portney did what Sidney Portney did. But they both work mm-hmm. for the, a very important charity. You know, I just, it was, it, I just thought that was the sweetest thing that Audrey said that. <laughs> yes. Well, it's true. Um. But in that sense, you know, it's like um, a United States uh, musical ambassador. I don't know if he was the first, but he was one of the very first uh, cultural ambassadors of the United States, was Louis Armstrong. Yes! Sexmo! Uh, you know, he's a unique <laughs> kind of guy. There's really nobody else that's that like him. Mm-hmm. He's got that unique voice and that unique style of playing. So, you know, there, there's been plenty of musical ambassadors since then, but there's nobody like him. He's a one-of-a-kind guy. Yeah. Yeah. I always loved him. He was so amazing. Um, and yes. I didn't realize, in some ways, he brought jazz really outside of um, New Orleans. He used to record, he was very young, just like a teenager, and he used to record all the jazz musicians and and then and send it out to the different radio stations. But really, it is that recording that was so important because that was the records that people started getting all around the world in like I think it was like the twenties or the thirties or something. Uh, yeah, he started back in the twenties. He had like a fifty-year career. Isn't that amazing? I mean, he basically imported jazz around the world. Yeah, well, that's um, that's something that uh, a unique contribution of American culture to world culture is jazz, because now you can find, and for many, many years, you can find jazz musicians all over the world. Yeah. Yeah, especially in the uh, 20s. <laughs> you know, the, the same thing with rock and roll, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's uh, rock and roll musicians all around the world, and that's, again, an American uh, cultural invention. And... Uh, other people do it well. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of good British jazz musicians and plenty of great British rock musicians. I I, I think it was Paul McCartney who said the biggest influence on the Beatles were um, um, Louis Armstrong and um, and jazz musicians and Elvis. The combination of the two, where the that's where they they got their style. Yes, and you can actually hear that in their singing and in their songwriting. You can hear those influences. They made it their own, but yeah, that's that's how they started. I I think it's fascinating. I would ne- I mean, he was it was later, and when he was explaining that, so I mean, that was past you know, his own group and stuff. I um 
but uh, he was talking about, and I like, it really surprised me. And then when I was like listening to the music, I go, yeah, I can hear it. But I never really would have thought that way, you know? It's just, it, wow, what a gift <laughs> to be able to bring it together like that. But, it, I mean, it's, I guess that's the way music is, right? I mean, it's a gift. You know, whatever way you do it is all the different influences that came into your life, right? That's true. Uh, one of the unique qualities of music is that it can bring people together. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because it's live performance but even recordings can bring people together. That's true. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, we used to share records. You know, records, not real exactly. records. I mean, you don't usually <laughs> see people sharing art books. You could, but that doesn't happen very much compared to people sharing music. That's true. That's true. It's kind of strange. But it's it's great. Well, it's just an intrinsic quality that music is something that brings people together, that you share, that you do socially. Yeah, I mean, uh, we used to bring, and this is going to age me like crazy, but we used to bring 45s to parties, and everybody brought whatever their favorite was at that point. And so you get all this mix, and you would be introduced to different music that you never heard of before. It was really fun. Yes. Uh, that was one of the things I did was I made mixtapes for parties. <laughs> but we didn't have that kind of stuff. I mean, they did have tapes, but we were poor. <laughs> the kids just wanted to have some fun, so we brought our own music. <laughs> I mean, when you went to a real party, you know, a party that adults did, then they have the mixtapes and stuff like that. But, you know, teenagers don't have that kind of money. <laughs> At least what the group I hung out with, we didn't have a lot of money. Yes, mixtapes were uh, a really popular thing for, I don't know, like uh, 20 years or something. Uh, now people share music just by sending a link. Yeah. <laughs> or a YouTube video. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have my rock out days where either it's like uh, music, my rock music that I like, or um, the folk music I like, and I just listen to that uh, for about an hour just to cheer myself up. <laughs> oh, by the way, I have a YouTube channel. If you uh, go to YouTube and look for David Rakelin. P-A-V-I-D-R-A-I-K-L-E-N, then there I am. Cool. Okay. Everybody subscribe to David's YouTube. Um, yes, please. Okay. So um, do you have a new mu music project you want to talk about? Yes. I had a wonderful opportunity to write for two of my favorite soloists. Douglas Masick, who's one of the world's greatest saxophone players and performs all around the world with famous bands and symphony orchestras, and Brian Pizzoni, who's also a touring artist and who uh, records on big movie soundtracks, and, and actually so does, uh, so does Doug. We got together and did something called Reciprocity Sax. Cool. We can play a little bit for you guys. Uh, it opens up with a call to adventure. And uh, there's a dialogue between the saxophone and the piano. And it goes to all different places, to uh, high mountains and seashores and mysterious forests. And it ends with a uh, very uh, fast and serious rhythmic finale and uh, we might be able to play a, a few seconds of, of that too and uh, I hope you enjoy it Reciprocity Sax with uh, Douglas Masick 
and Brian Pizzoni. That was great. Um, where is it going to be available to people? It is available everywhere on Apple Music, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, just uh, wherever your favorite music store is. Spotify, you can get Reciprocity Sex. Cool. Uh, and um, can you spell it so people will know how to find it? <laughs> Okay, uh, sure. Uh, R like rocket. E-C-I-P-R-O-C-I-T-Y. Sax. Sax. Sax people know, they, but I just wanted that because sometimes it's more difficult. Well, if you just put Sax and Raiklin, my name, you'll probably find it too. Oh, yeah, well, that's easy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um... Also, um, as everybody knows, I have a radio playhouse called Sherry's Playhouse, and we yeah. have yay, and we have a new play that we're rehearsing right now called Cyrano, which is Cyrano. It's been wow. a little changed. It's it's instead of in France, it's uh, in America during the American uh, fight for independence, and. Um, I I, like asked, <laughs> I asked David a favor, and he said yes. He's going to compose the music for our radio play. Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really enjoying working with you and Ray and Ev. And I uh, got a chance to write a Roxanne theme, a a wonderful romantic Roxanne theme for. I love it. It's so beautiful. And I'm a romantic, so I really wanted that. <laughs> yes. Well, there's been so many versions of this play, and I thought that, uh, at least from what I'd heard, that uh, she really deserved a beautiful melody that showed uh, that she was also highly uh, intelligent, a smart lady. Mm-hmm. Very. As well as beautiful. That's why Cyrano falls in love with her, because she's smart. I mean, he had other beautiful women that he met, but this is the one he fell for, because she was not just beautiful, she was smart. Yes, a great story. I um, I, I was so appreciative that you said yes, and I love the music that uh, you did. I... Um, I, I can't wait to share it. Um, so, um, Raymond Brent is our director, who's the Ray, and uh, Ev is Everett Roberts, who wrote it, uh, and they're both acting in it. So, great. it's going to be really cool. It's, uh, we have a great cast, I mean, an amazing cast, and um, I can't wait. To release it into the world. <laughs> I can't wait either uh, to both finish working on it and then to be part of the audience and enjoy it. It, uh, it the music you you sent us is just phenomenal. We're all we're we're the, so far it's only the three of us who've heard it, but we're over the moon. I mean, it just it is. Thank you, David. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, uh, I try to do my best, and this is an inspiring subject. I mean, uh, it, it's such a great story, and this is such a awesome updating. Instead of being in the 17th century, now it's in the 18th century. Right. And uh, I love the music of that era, too, so we, we put touches of that in there, too. So it, it sounds... Uh, like it could be from that uh, 
you know, 1776 time. It is just, um, it is, it's really fun play. It's really well uh, uh, updated and um, it's different. And, and, and But it's still Cyrano. And, I mean, you, Cyrano is still Cyrano. He still has the same problem. Um, <laughs> but um, but it's really, yeah, it's kind of cool to have it in the Revolution because we get a special guest star because of it. I'm not going to say who. <laughs> the poet swordsman. Yeah. Well, I just love him taking care of people, making fun of him. It's some of the those are just some of my favorite parts of uh, the play. Uh, they there was a movie uh, called Roxanne with Steve Martin. Martin did pretty good. I was really impressed, um, especially with those parts. Um, that was more modern. That was, I think, was it the 80s or the 90s? I think it was the 90s that he did that. Yes. Um, but, um, but our play is really good. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Roxanne was an 80s movie, but, uh, you know, it's a timeless story. Yeah, yeah. And it was really, um, uh, it was, it was one. It was really good. It was well done. But I like our play. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I'm very excited about that. Um, we're getting I'm ready to. Oh, I'm sorry. What were, I'm. I was just saying I'm excited for it too. Oh, good. Yeah. And um, I wanted to uh, ask you. Um, for people who haven't heard from me before, could you give your uh, website and your social media? Yes. So uh, I invite everybody to follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. I'm Raiklin, R-A-I-K-L-E-N, on Instagram. And uh, David Raiklin is my website, .com. Cool. Um, thank you, David, for taking the time out of your day to uh, chat with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. A great show, a great guests, and uh, I had a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. <laughs> Thank you.